0: hey hey kids and welcome back to the awards radar podcast as always i'm joey and here today i am again joined by miles say hi miles hi miles he does it just for me and uh our guest today we got a special guest well maybe not special but a guest
1: we have eric marchand eric say say things uh bonjour je m'appelle eric marchin how are you that's my uh french canadian side coming out so i've done my bit and thank you so much for having me on the show my pleasure
0: eric has uh, had me on his podcast and television show so he has terrible taste but uh you know we gotta return the favor so uh eric quickly uh or not quickly we got time uh tell the listeners a little bit about yourself
1: and uh brace yourself for whatever canadian jokes we make over the next hour uh, that's that's fine with me. Uh, well, Joey, I'm 32. I enjoy long walks on the beach, uh, you know, spending most of my nights at home, cooped up watching uh, screeners, as most people are these days, especially in our field. Uh, no, I, I mean, I've been a film
0: critic that's from, now. That's from, your, that's from your Canadian dating app profile, Maple, right?
1: Yes, yes, yeah. The Maple Syrup <laughs> app. Uh, oh, that's, oh that's yeah. The, the <laughs> uh the we we get a little racy here in Canada, um, just a little though. Yeah, yeah. But after after midnight, you know, we got to keep it clean until then because we know some kids are going to try to sneak a sneak a peek, but they're they're not able to. So you know, CBC after dark. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, City TV actually uh, used to have um, adult entertainment after midnight uh, called Baby Blue, which was kind of a big thing for a lot of kids growing up. You know, coming of age in the late '90s, early 2000s. So you know, it's it's not far off. Miles, uh, we're doing it wrong. The like, government even gives them porn over there. <laughs> oh my god! How do, how quickly can we like sort of emigrate over? Uh, well, you know what? I we'd be you know happy to have you over. You can crash over uh, at my place. It's it's all up to you guys. But yeah, it, um, I mean, I've been a film critic now for. Ooh, uh, 13, 14 years. My first uh on-camera review was for Martin Scorsese's *The Departed*. Um, back on uh, Roger's TV used to have a show like a um, kind of Regis and Kathy style show called *Daytime*, and that was the first appearance I made. And ever since then, I've decided to go into a career where I'm, you know, financially broke. So it's, you know, been great. We have that in common. Now I'm trying now I've the entire time he was
0: talking I was listening but I was also now coming up with spin-offs of the uh, maple syrup app so wouldn't maple leaf be the cleaner <laughs> a slightly cleaner one
1: yeah but it could also get associated with the Toronto maple Leafs, so that might be something that confuses a lot of people and I mean listen there could be a section of the app for just the players that it could Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there are. is a fetish. I'm sure there is a specific niche there for uh, fans. It would not surprise me. I think the players would be more interested. Wait, I could just access the fans directly through this. I, I mean, listen, <laughs>
0: work hard on the field. I don't want to work hard off of it. I oh, I man. remember in this might be like 20 years ago. Nah, it's not not as long. Maybe 10 years ago. So the dating apps were sort of like a new thing. And they would advertise in New York City on like telephone, you know, like payphones, you know, the, uh, the like box outside of it. And there were so many, I guess that just like popped up for a minute and didn't last or they're more niche and, and none of them really tell you what they do, obviously, you know, like Tinder, hinge, Bumble, all these things. They're just buzzwords in the case of like, um, Bumble, very like aptly buzzwords, you know? But there's not that like is like, you know, this is the app that just called like friction. You know, like, oh, I, I get what you're getting at. But I remember passing one once in the city and its name was Squirt. And I always oh. thought like, <laughs> wow, they went straight to the point. Like there's they're not even pretending to be classy. And I kind of respected them for it. Not enough to download you know, they, it, mind they've you. They've got a
2: target audience. They know what they're going for. I mean, I'm, I'm
0: sure
1: they're hitting the target with. Well, you guys can finish that sentence. Um, well, I, I I hope at least if um, you know if if people connect on that app, maybe like the the buzzword or sort of the 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 sort of the way to get off it is is uh, we've got a squirter. So the way to get off it, the way to get off
0: on it. Uh, I mean, listen, whatever works for two or more people, I'm not one to judge. Um. Whereas, you know, we work in an industry that does nothing but judge people. So that's another
1: it's another thing. But Constructive uh, criticism, Joey. Constructive criticism. That's what we'll call film Twitter? Uh, fair enough. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they, they have their lackings. But, you know, they do send over good questions. So we're going to grab one for our, uh, our discussion today. And uh, as almost always, it's from Ryan McDermott. So thank you, Ryan. And uh, we're gonna do a filmaholic face-off, and the uh, the topic is kind of floating, but you'll you'll get the gist. So the uh, the first one, uh, Eric, it's your preference. You've you've heard it. Um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or Darkest Hour.
2: Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Um, I'm actually going to say Darkest Hour. I'm not a huge fan of either, even though I love Gary Oldman, but uh, Tinker Taylor, I was super excited for and I was kind of disappointed by. Yeah, I'm not wild about either. I think they're both aggressively fine. Like they're
0: efficiently made too long, right on the cusp of being boring and like he's good in them. But I I personally like when, when Gary Oldman loses his mind a little bit more. Or if he's being normal, that he's under some makeup, um, but not darkest hour like fat suit type stuff. Like I like I, the contender is my, you know, being normal Gary Oldman. So mm. I think. Oh, I thought it was not- Dracula. No, that, that, <laughs> I, it's fun, but it's crazy. Um, or then he has to be in like, was it The Fifth Element or or um, The
1: Professional or something? Leon or the, the Professional? The yeah, yeah. Where, he's yeah, a, yeah. where he's
0: an absolute lunatic. And then I, or Sid and Nancy like. You know, but for his, there like, was
1: prestige. a time, though, where G- Gary Oldman was, you know, in that same kind of league as like a Daniel Day Lewis, where like he completely committed himself to the role. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, Sid and Nancy and then also like prick up your ears and things like that, yeah. where like he completely kind of. Like, if you watch the behind-the-scenes making of Dracula and you see him, like, in between takes, kind of going nuts in in, in the role, and then, you know, you cut to, like, Winona Ryder or, or Keanu Reeves, and they just don't know how to handle, you know, what he's doing. But it's kind of fascinating how he is completely... Mellowed out over the last, you know, 10, 15 years and hasn't been as picky when it comes to uh, projects. But I, I would say, like, with Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy specifically, what I love about it is the minutiae and the details of it. And, and I think that that's the thing that really um, won me over with the movie. And I, I mean, I also really love the Sir Alec Guinness um, series. And if you look at, um, what Thomas Alfredson did afterwards with uh, the, uh-huh. with the snowman uh, yeah. you can go back and really appreciate Tinker Taylor even more.
0: <laughs> I want to talk about the snowman in a minute because of this, this is why we get off topic, but first miles, have you ever seen the making of uh, behind the scenes stuff for Dracula?
2: I've seen some of it, yeah, and I know exactly what you're talking about, where he's just kind of, like, getting increasingly unhinged between takes. Oh, yeah. And
0: for listeners, if, you, if you're if you not aware, uh, Gary Oldman stays in character the whole time and actually um, kills and sucks the blood of numerous ADs on the movie.
2: And they just covered
0: it up. Sorry, that amused
2: me way too much. The Coppola winery is still paying off those cover-ups to this day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why do you think there's so many types of the wine?
1: Well, well, that's why the Godfather Coda is out, right? They, I mean, it's not because it's to you know repurpose the Godfather Part Three; it's to continue to hide the secret that Gary Oldman is actually a vampire.
0: Oh, every time there's a new Coppola like remix, whether it was Apocalypse Now or the Cotton Club, it's because there was a new lawsuit from the family. I mean, this is this is just well known inside the Hollywood Beltway.
1: So we probably can't wait for a Twixt remix.
0: Yeah, I mean, he was doing that live every time. I gotta say, I would have liked to have seen that, where he, like, mixes the film as you're watching it and edits it. It would have been incomprehensible, mind you. But so was The Snowman, and they released that in the theaters. True that. Yeah. I'll go with Tinker Tailor on this, just to say it. But, my God, The Snowman. I love the fact that they, they, like, apparently only shot, like, 60% of the script and had to, like, figure it out. And, you know, cast Val Kilmer. (laughs)
1: And bring in Thelma Schoonmaker, uh, Martin Scorsese's editor, to try to salvage it as well. And, like, it's just funny that, you know, your lead character's name is Harry Hole. I mean, come on. like it's And they always pronounce it Harry Hole. Yeah. I mean, I imagine it's supposed to be, like, Hoove,
0: like, you know, some sort of Scandinavian. Or hool, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, they're his co-workers for the last several decades. Like, call him Harry.
2: But... (laughs) No, every time, Harry Hole. Um, they were doing a well, lot it's the of the Well, it's the only porn parody where they didn't have to change the name. Exactly. Well, that's <laughs> the thing. I think the other 40% they didn't shoot was shot in the porn parody. So if you go back and you would re- –
0: hey, Coppola, if you mix these two movies together, I think you find the actual snowman.
1: Or home man, I guess, you know. <laughs> I think they did change the name, though, to Harry Holes just to, you know – So they wouldn't get sued. I think that was the one thing that they had to make clear for the adult version.
0: Well, no, I think the first one is Harry Harry Hole. Harry Holes is the sequel that they were never going to get to do because you know (laughs) the first one didn't succeed.
1: Even in the porn world, is
0: economics. Come on.
1: I'm Joe Nesbo is one of those those authors that just everything that they've adapted so far Hollywood wise is has not worked, and I'm a little bit nervous. For uh, Denny Villeneuve's uh, The Sun with Jake Gyllenhaal, which is now becoming an HBO series, but I think if anybody could translate that, maybe it would be him, just because again, Denny, like, you know, David Fincher, has that kind of cold, clinical sort of commercial style that all kind of goes back to, like, you know, Ridley Scott and uh, Tony Scott and people like that, so.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very specific flex, though, like, um, murder, you know, mystery, crime thriller that you just keep going back to the well. Because I feel like if you're an author who writes those, and granted I haven't read any of any of Nesbo's books, but I know they almost always get snapped up to at least be developed. It's kind of the same thing, just, you know, swap out the, the twist or the killer or the reason. Um, so it does come a lot down to the filmmaker or, right. you know, who's adapting it. Like, what do you, what can you add to this that is either different than, than what we've seen. Cause like at, the, at its core, like I think you're, you're, you're more, you're more flexible on reading the same thing more than once. Like I don't mind if I read, you know, an author I like and six of the 10 books are similar in vibe. It's comforting in that way, I think. But if you were to watch, you know, all those movies get adapted and they were very similar, I think at a certain point, the repetition visually starts to set in so i think that's where you you run into an issue i'm like look at the snowman like part of that was it was gonna be a a scorsese movie like it was gonna be like a big ass you know production and as it triggered you know didn't wind up that way and started to become a smaller movie and a movie where you're like i have no idea why this is being made you you know it, it gets swallowed up in the like well what can we bring to it and and you know, three screenwriters always the best sign, and <laughs> and yeah, like all the people involved in this movie should not have made that bad a movie. Like almost by accident, you know. Like even if even if you take out Thomas Alfredson, like Miles, you direct from time to time. Like if I gave you a script based on a book that people like, two of the writers were Hossein Amini and Peter Stron. I gave you Michael Fassbender, Rebecca Ferguson, Troy Gainsberg, Val Kilmer, and J. K. Simmons. I gave you Marco Beltrami to do your score. I gave you Dion Beebe to shoot it. One of your two editors was Thomas Schoolmaker. Like you would think you could have done something comprehensible at least, right?
2: I mean, one would hope so. But again, so much of it, A, comes down to is the script competent enough that we can make all the other aspects sing? Because nine times out of 10 with these movies, you get all the other talent in place. But if the script isn't there, even if it's written by talented writers, then it just causes this trickle down effect where nothing else can really rise to
1: the talent level that it should normally possess. Yeah. Well, even jumping into like, this wasn't the first book of the series, like this was like the fifth or sixth book. So it's kind of odd that they decided, okay, well, the snowman is going to be the one where, you know, we jump in and kind of tell this weird story. And and a lot of the, the kind of like sinister imagery throughout really isn't that scary. I mean, you know, a snowman being built outside someone's home before they're murdered is kind of goofy and like it got almost into this like soap opera territory with the chloe sevigny twins characters halfway through which was just ridiculous
0: yeah but also keep in mind you can do that because gone
1: baby gone is like right in the middle of that book series Oh yeah no I'm not saying it's impossible but it's just it's interesting to kind of like that was the book out of everything that they could have chosen that that's where we're going to kind of like you know start and you watch the coverage in the first scene of that movie and it is just all over the place it is so choppy there are so many um sort of establishing shots to cover up um close ups that they either didn't get or weren't working and like it's just Right from that first sort of prologue, you kind of get a sense that this movie is just – is a disaster waiting to happen.
0: It's one of those movies I desperately want to be able to talk to like Michael Fassbender or J.K. Simmons <laughs> at a party and just be like, so was this just a miserable experience? And they'd probably be like, yeah, with no idea what's happening. <laughs> like, Because like, imagine like shooting that scene with the with the snowman head on the body that doesn't show up in the film. Where you're just like, so this is going in the trailer, but where else? Like, what are we? What are we doing? Like, what's happening? And then someone just has to whisper, like, you're getting paid several million dollars. Like, go away.
2: I feel like Fassbender would sort of look back on it re- re- with regret, but J.K. Simmons would probably just be like, "Oh yeah, I did do that, didn't I?" I think his exact sense might be like,
0: oh, "Yeah, I did do that. That kind of sucked. I got paid. All right." <laughs> Because I think, I think he has that perspective of, like, I didn't get, like, started until I was already 30 or 40. So, everything that I... I mean, he's a little pickier now, but, you know, everything that I'm in is, like, one, a paycheck, two, a job, and three, like, I get to do this. So, you know. No. We, no, I, I want to say he wouldn't do it now, but I'm sure it's possible.
1: But who knows? I mean, on paper, it, like, we, we were talking about it, it, it looks like you know, uh, a winning combination. So I can understand why, you know, the people that are, you know, signing on to do this signed on to do it. I mean, even still having Martin Scorsese, you know, give his name up for executive producer, like, you know, like I can understand why everybody wanted to be a part of that. And then, you know, as soon as you have someone like Michael Fassbender attached as well to Star, it it kind of feels like, okay, this might be something. So, you know, there are are a lot of projects like this where they fall apart, but the way that this movie fell apart (laughs) is just like- there were choices made and, and 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 it is interesting like i would love to get like an oral history of this film uh one day and and i'm sure maybe you know the filmmakers right now are not really keen on talking about it but you never know down the line like that would be kind of an interesting like where it went wrong exactly or at what point and and i think you know to your guys point like the script is 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 key so if you don't have a compelling story, especially when it comes to these like pulpier narratives, like someone – again, like someone like David Fincher could take this and, you know, make this work in his sleep, but it would also be designed by, you know, an inch of its life, um, it's not going to work. And, and I think you can tell that like after Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Thomas Alfredson was, you know, a, a smart choice, but also at the same time, like he's trying to also do something a little bit different with like elevating the material and it just doesn't work.
0: It reminds me of that Simpsons joke where they make a commercial for the power plant and it's incomprehensible. And Homer goes, "There were script problems from day one." And Lisa goes, "It seems like nobody even read the script." and He goes, "Yeah, that was one of the problems." <laughs> Speaking of movies that sounded like good ideas until you saw them, Les Mis or Mamma Mia? Oh, fuck off! Oh yeah, um, Sophie's choice the, right there. We're into the Amanda Seyfried section now.
2: Oh, God. Uh, can I say neither? I mean, that's what I want to
1: say, but I think we should have to. I would also like to opt out for neither. <laughs> it's a push. Yeah, they're both terrible.
2: I, I will say I rather listen to Les Mis. Yeah, but like not if, the movie version. The movie version well, I mean, ruins all if, the music.
1: And if you have if, if you to, you're forced to listen to, to Russell
2: Crowe. Crow. <laughs>
1: yeah, if yeah. you don't listen to Russell
0: Crowe, I feel like it goes a little better. Which is also wild to me, because going into that movie... So, years ago, I saw it with my ex's family. Her her mom was a fan of, of the previous incarnations. And I remember going going like... Well, I mean, Russell is the only one who's a musician, supposedly. Like he has a band. Like, how bad can he be? And And came out going, wow wow they uh they allowed that they they really let that happen so um yeah well well,
2: Hugh Jackman's a big Broadway star he should have knocked it out of the park there's no
0: excuse the weird thing was there's so many different versions I think of how they recorded it because if I I recall that that year if you went to like an AMC or Regal I forget which one maybe both you know you would sit through the uh so not at press screens regular just paying to see a movie they would have that for a time the run of like Here's six movies that are in production that we're just like previewing. It's not a trailer. It's just like, you know, instead of yeah, a like a behind the, the scenes now, kind of. Yeah, it was featurette like, you know, whatever. yeah, yeah. They would do like little featurettes and one was for Les
2: Mis. I don't know if you remember it. And they would have a idea where, th- where they were boasting about how they would do all the live singing and how yeah, oh, we're yeah, going to yeah. we're going to revolutionize the movie musical. And they showed
0: a little bit of one of the Hugh Jackman takes, you know, um, what have I done kind of thing. And it's a completely different sound than what's in the movie. Like, yeah. in the movie, I think he's just, like, talking it. And in the on the featurette, he's, you know, projecting it as, like, a like a opera almost. And I remember going, all right, this doesn't look like my thing, but cool. And then at the time, I didn't get access quite in the same way, so I didn't go to, the, like, the Thanksgiving reveal that I would have been at, you know, these days. I remember Clayton being like, It's going to win Best Picture. I was like, really? It still looks terrible. Saw it on Christmas Day. I was like, no, this is... Awful, but we've tricked people into liking it, I guess. I don't know. Mamma Mia sucks also, but I think it's, you know, meant to be pleasant, at least.
1: I am weirdly fascinated by Tom Hooper's decision to shoot everything in close-up when, you know, he has these amazing sets and actors. It's just like, you know, we're going to shoot it uh, in close-up, in every, every shot to get the emotion, and it just kind of loses its edge. And I also think he's on this weird, like, vendetta to sabotage every Broadway adaptation that Terrence Mann was in because between both Les Mis and Cats, it feels like the guy is just you know at this point like you know what fuck it I'll I'll you know I'll I'll do any you know Broadway adaptation that once starred Terrence Mann. Yeah, I mean, his you know, he never met a close-up or a Dutch angle
0: he didn't like. So he mm-hmm. uh, he's very distinguishable as a filmmaker, um, much to the chagrin of you know people who like movies, but let's be real um i do like i will say i do like um
1: the damned united before he you know got obsessed with his style well even that john way. adams has some good stuff in there like with yeah, the hbo oh, for sure. series
0: yeah, yeah 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 i would i remember he was at one point pegged to direct iron man 3 oh and, god <laughs> yeah can you imagine iron man 3 just at a dutch angle all the time Oh, my God. Fingers crossed Uh, for He would have
1: never worked in the Marvel style, though. He would have been one of those directors that got fired after a few weeks. Unless there's an angular man. Maybe maybe that would work or something like that. But fingers crossed for a Starlight Express adaptation by Tom Hooper. (laughs) Oh, my (laughs) God. All right. Moving on. Nightcrawler or Rogue One? Oh,
0: Nightcrawler all day. Yeah.
1: Nightcrawler is amazing. Yeah
0: i think so i have to re- i so i have to revisit rogue one because i'm i like it but i wasn't blown away i i remember watching it and going this is good but i guess because it felt a little less star wars i was i was somewhat thrown off
1: so i'll revisit it at some point i just haven't done it yet but there's a great interview with uh brian koppelman um and uh uh tony gilroy and gilroy talks about all the problems with rogue one and why he was brought in and like his approach to the material because he didn't care for star wars and he saw it more as like yeah. a battle for britain-esque movie so i recommend checking that out
0: yeah no i appreciate what they did i i don't remember, i think it was just like the visual style and i don't there was just something about it that 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 night when i saw it it was i saw it at, at, a, at a uh draft house like opening night because oh. i this was back when Disney was being very precious with who they allowed to see uh, their movies. Um, randomly, only for Star Wars and Marvel. Other than that, they were you know like, you want to come see uh, this Disney nature documentary? You're in. I don't know something about. Do it. you want to see Planes? <laughs> they did. I, I I did see Planes. It was <laughs> mediocre. Um, I uh, yeah I, I it like didn't wash over me the same way it did for some other people. And, but I will say Nightcrawler took more than one viewing. Also. I I went to a uh, a press screening like in the middle of the New York Film Festival. I went to just like a regular press screening. Like, can you can you make this? So I slipped it in in between. And I remember not getting it. Not like I didn't understand what it was going for, but I just didn't. Like I got out of it going. This is what people thought was like almost the new network. Right. Like, whatever. And I and I moved on with my life. And then I went to an event for it. Um for Jake Gyllenhaal like award season event and I didn't watch it but I I kind of showed up at the end to listen to the Q&A and I I spoke to Jake Gyllenhaal for a little bit and I was like I gotta watch I guess I gotta watch this again like I I must be missing something and so I went to a a third event that they had I think it was might have been the premiere and I watched it again and, and it worked more so it's definitely my pick and I got it then like okay I see what everyone likes for some reason the first viewing, I was like, "This is not nearly as like edgy or, or fucked up as people are saying it is." Second time, second time, it, it kind of it, it hit, it landed with me. So, it's the better of the two movies. They're both good, but I do wonder if maybe Rogue One would work better now, watching it again. Um, and obviously, this is a Riz Ahmed themed, um, yeah, thing. So, yeah, it's interesting.
2: But, but- Nightcrawler that year, Nightcrawler is one of two movies where. It was that and it was a three, billboard, there three billboards over Ebbing, Missouri, where I watched them and like, I thought they were good, not great, um, but I couldn't help but feeling both of these movies set up where if they were to make a sequel to these two movies, the sequel would be a way more interesting story than the movie we actually got. Like they both sort of leave on these pseudo cliffhangers of like what might be about to happen. And in both cases, I was like, I'd much rather see that story. That seems like the real story. So, it was uh, not the same year, though. Will, were they not the same year? I thought. No, they were a the, year apart. Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler was the Birdman year. So that was oh, uh, 2014, right. Right. right? Yeah. Okay. Well, the point still remains. Yeah, no, it, it, Rogue One, I have seen twice. It doesn't get better. Fair enough. And we have one more Detroit or Attack the Block? Attack the Block. Definitely Attack the Block. Yeah, I mean, that's boys that a tonal jarring tonally. But yeah, I've got to go attack the block.
0: I go Detroit. Attack the block is one of those I didn't get. I got to say, like I got I went and saw it and I was like, this is fine. Don't get the fuss. Um, Detroit, I did. I did love. Um, mind you, I have not watched the second time because it is a miserable experience. But, you know, incredibly effective filmmaking. Um like though, though John byega might be better in Attack the Block, I might concede that. Like he's good in Detroit, but mm. that's very much an ensemble piece and you're you're more just like marveling over how evil the cops are being, as opposed to an individual performance. So it is a stat cat.
1: Yeah, Attack the Block is is to me like that is Boyega's, like, not only breakout turn, but, like, it is a star-making turn. And, like, you can tell that, like, this kid is going places. But it is also interesting because, like, that movie came out, what, in 2011? And it took a really long time for Hollywood to really catch on to him before, you know, the casting of the uh, the Star Wars movies. Uh, so, like, it, it, was, it was interesting that that took a while. And then jo- Joe Cornish, who directed the film, you know, had, you know, a co-writing credit with Edgar Wright on Ant-Man and, you know, that – fell through and obviously went a different direction than what they were going to make it. And then with the you know, um with his kind of medieval kind of kids movie, like it, it it took him so long to really cash in on Attack the Block's success, which I found really kind of strange.
0: Yeah, he slipped through the cracks in a weird way. Like normally that would be, you know, can we give you a blockbuster? Um that did not happen. Like they almost treated him like he was a you know a female filmmaker. You made a movie everyone likes. Let's do nothing to help your career. Yeah, it's kind of like the cult classic that never was. Yeah, kind of like in the same way that like, I, like listen, I, I really like Safety Not Guaranteed, but you know, Safety Not Guaranteed launched how many careers? You know, and 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 you know, won a, a Spirit Award and and like listen, I love it, but Attack the Block fundamentally is a similar like could have done the exact same thing. I don't like it as much as if they're not guaranteed, but it is always weird when a movie like that doesn't break through. Whereas another one that essentially is offering up the same sort of idea, you know, on a budget science fiction filmmaker, you can envision doing a bigger project. Why one works and one doesn't in that realm is always sort of a mystery.
1: Because he was, Joe Cornish was supposed to direct like a Bond-esque movie, but then The Broccoli sued that production, which I thought yeah, was yeah. interesting. Right, and yeah, then he man. went on to do The uh, the Kid Who Would Be King. And I kind of felt like, again, like it, there was some anticipation of just seeing like, okay, what would be his follow-up movie to Attack the Block? And then The Kid Who Would Be King, which is fine. I don't think it's a, a great movie, but I mean, it's it's entertaining. If you're of a certain age, I think it would really hit with you. But it was just kind of felt like, they by the time it got to production, like nobody really even cared. Yes. Right. Yeah, no, I, I I believe I've still never seen it.
2: Let us not forget he was also a co-writer on The Adventures of Tintin. Yes. yes. Yeah. I've tried to forget that. I love that movie. What are you talking about? Eh. I do too. That's the Indiana Jones 4 that we never got. I mean it's better than the Indiana Jones 4, I will concede that. But also doesn't like
0: thrill me, let's say. That's fine. I, I I I'm not cry- I'm not crying that they never really got to a uh, a sequel. I am. I cry
1: every night. Well, I mean I cry every night too, but for different reasons. Hmm. No, I cry about that thing. in a in a sequel to Master and Commander that we never got as well. I mean, there's probably a porn sequel with a similar title.
0: <laughs> this family guy already did that joke. nah when in doubt uh, So the follow up question from Ryan is Out of the six Oscar categories Joey, that's me Has Mank predicted to win right now Which is the safest bet and the least safest bet So I will I will uh, Bring up the six categories for you They are Best Director Best Production Design Best Cinematography Best Costume Design Best Makeup and Hairstyling And Best Original Score So that's the six wins I have it getting out of its uh, seven, eight, nine, like 11 or 12
2: nominations. Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) Don't know. I would would like to believe that. Yeah, I would like to believe that Fincher is uh, is in a really good position to win best director, if only because I feel like he's due. But that's the kind of wishful thinking that only goes so far when it comes to predictions, I I might go lean towards production design. I think especially out of sort of the contenders this year, that's the one that'll probably pop and stand out. And also Hollywood loves to reward old Hollywood. Yeah. Eric, what do you think?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great pick. I mean, like just off the top of my head, like I, I also kind of want Fincher to win, not necessarily because I think it's Fincher's best film. And like, Again, it almost feels like he's he's partly due, but it took the, the Academy such a long time to recognize him to begin with. Um, and you know, him losing to Tom Hooper for uh the King's speech over social network kind of shows you that maybe the Academy isn't completely have hasn't completely embraced him yet. Um right. so I'd say maybe the one category now that probably could win, but again, because it's digital. Um, The cinematography is one where it's like, oh, I could see them like really kind of like, you know, appreciating the monochrome and, you know, the kind of like the faux uh, grain and cigarette burns and things like that in the film. But I also could see them holding that against uh, Eric Messerschmitt's um, cinematography just because it is digital and everything else around the film seemed to be committed to making a movie that was shot in and around the late 1930s, early 40s. Um, But again, visually speaking, speaking it's such a pristine looking film that i could see you know a lot of people going um you know goo goo gaga after it because it is just a, a very slick looking uh movie overall you assume that they would know
0: the difference which is you know, <laughs> well that's fair you think a lot of the academy i uh so here's the thing about that i i think it's good i think those are i think director on paper seems like a very likely one i don't know if i could say it's the most likely because it is certainly possible that they they go Chloe Zhao, or it splits so much that there's another opportunity. They seem like the two most likely right now, just in terms of of what seems like a winner to me right now in director, at least. So I would probably say cinematography. But
1: can I ask you, know you a question? What you do insist. you think? do you think Mank might actually miss on something like Gary Oldman for best actor? Because I do feel that the performances, we were talking about this on on my show where like, you know, the performances are good. I think they're all well cast. Everybody's great, but there's not really a lot of kind of standout moments. And I almost feel that like they could pass on Gary Oldman. Because again, you look at Gary Oldman's career, he wasn't nominated until Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And he had given so many, you know, awards worthy performances before then and has only been nominated and won once and then been nominated twice, like in total. So I could almost see the Academy being like, well, we've given him enough recently. So why not, you know, give it to, you know, Steve Yoon, Stephen Yoon or, or Riz Ahmed instead or someone like that.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about this a little bit. Um, it would be kind of like uh, De Niro and the Irishman last year. Um, you know, we're, we're avoiding the main character in the movie. We're nominating everywhere else. But but yeah, he's, he's definitely in... I was talking to, I think, Wilson Morales about this um, last week or a couple of days ago. And I think Matt Negley also. I think we both discussed it recently. That uh, there's kind of like a tier system in Best Actor for me now. Um, and we'll talk about Actor a little bit more later as like a category but yeah there's there's the safe people who i feel like there's two actors who are going to get nominated and then there's about four people who are fighting out for those other spots those other three spots and then there's a whole load of people who are sort of in the hunt but yeah altman is not guaranteed a spot i think the odds of him missing are not super high but i would make the case that there is there's definitely scenarios where that might happen and we'll talk about that when we get to actor um the thing i think about cinematography that does make it a likely win is the lack of competition and the fact that um it's perhaps harder to appreciate cinematography not in theaters so right <clears throat> having not that you can't but that you know the the scope and epi- epicness of something is a little bit of a harder sell so where mank has its gimmick that'll that'll appeal to people um for example like a news of the world which has very sweeping looking cinematography and we can talk about that a little bit also because i've seen the movie um it does not necessarily play as epic on your computer you know or on your tv so if you look at sort of the other contenders there isn't like a clear cut like oh this is what wins
1: so I think if you were... And that's on, Darius Wolski, right? Who yes. who shot... news Because he's never been nominated, so... Yeah, you could easily
0: have um, five nominees who have never been nominated before. And I believe a significant amount of people who are um, making predictions in cinematography are predicting five people who have never been nominated. I have... The only person I have being nominated previously is uh, Fade and Pop Michael, because... He's nominated for Nebraska. He uh, trots Chicago Seven, which is not like a surefire thing to get in. But you look at some of the other contenders, and aside from like Point Van Hotema, if they're really going to go tenant, uh, Newton Thomas Siegel's never been nominated. Stefan Fontaine's never been nominated. Um, I don't think Sean Bobbitt's been
1: nominated. So there's No, he hasn't. And it's that's real that's the strange one because you think something like Twelve Years a Slave would have gotten him the nomination at least and nothing. Yeah, so so you could have very easily five first time nominees, so
0: they're not even going to like fall back on on comfort. So I do think the the
1: gimmick of Mank will will ultimately win the day there. Well, unless they nominate Roger Deakin's podcast. Just I mean listen, he's in my
0: territory uh what about the least likely of the six
2: okay so I actually I had a question for you guys and this is almost less to do with um with nomination or win likelihood but just as far as personal preferences how did you guys feel about the score of mank because I had heard a lot leading up to it that oh it's very distinctive oh it's completely different than what you expect from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and I got about halfway through the movie before I realized oh yeah, I was supposed to be listening out for this iconic score and I haven't heard it yet. Not that it wasn't there, but just it didn't leave any kind of impression on me whatsoever. I think that's its intent
0: is the thing. I think it's meant to be a score from the 30s that you're like, oh, I've heard this a million times before. And that's their, their but sort But not of even that, because there
2: are scores from the 30s. You look at stuff like Casablanca or whatever that does stick with me. And that one, it, like, not even that it blended in, just that I didn't find there to be anything I get. I mean, it felt period appropriate, but it didn't feel interesting. I guess, like if you had told me it was done Tarantino style, where they just use clips from other movies, I would have believed you because there didn't feel like anything noteworthy. Yeah, I think there.
0: that's their. I think that's their plan. Um, granted, I think they're they're slightly better in in soul, but I, I like this score just because there's something about the idea of Trent Reznor able to do like, you know, studio fa- studio system, you know orchestral arrangements that, 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 tink, that um, tickled me, but, but yeah, it's not, I don't think it's meant to be like the, the opening of social network where you, you, that particular arrangement will, will stick with you forever. I think it's, it's meant to serve the material a lot more in the same way that I think the acting also is, it has that, you know, of the time slightly stilted, right. you know, slightly speaking in a, in a, in a, um, not rhymes, but there's a rhythm to the voice I think it's just all in serving that vision, so that's that's the thing. And yeah, I mean, technically, you could say that like maybe it's less likely to win that category because they could win for their other movie.
2: <laughs> that's also what? an interesting. Oh, with Soul? Well, I, I yeah. saw to see that one. But it's
1: yeah, it's I, still hear that. Soul is a very like it's at the forefront of the narrative where like with Mank like. There were times where I was thinking, like, okay, when is the score really going to kick in and we're going to get, you know, their version of the big band jazz infused, you know, style. And I would say the only scene that kind of maybe pops out a little bit is the, um, the election day scene, um, in, 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 right. in that movie. But, but that's also just like, pure style over substance where like it feels like that's the scene where it's like oh remember this is a David Fincher movie so we're gonna get one moment at least in this where you know it is kind of him just kind of going all in and that's where the scene kind of like you know everything kind of clicks and then like I think I was more taken aback by the cameo in Mank um, the actor I don't want to ruin it for people but the actor who plays Upton Sinclair than anything else like that was the one moment where I was like I had my you know Leonardo DiCaprio Pointing at the screen moment um, Mm -hmm. with with that film. But, like, yeah, like this movie is so subtle and subdued that I could see a lot of people who are of a certain age demographic really not being interested in it the way that maybe more people were in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in general. But it's also now going to be interesting that you have these two movies coming out and, you know, with even. Damien Chazelle's uh, Babylon and Ben Affleck doing potentially the um, uh, Chinatown behind the scenes movie that you're going to get like almost this sort of renaissance of, you know, behind the scenes making of movies now or like, you know, a specific period of time in terms of a biopic.
2: Right. Well, and don't forget, there's two separate projects about the making of The Godfather in development right now.
1: Right. One's television and one's film. So, yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, I I mean I'm I'm in I'm in for most. I I do love that there's so many different vibes. So like, isn't uh, Damien Chazelle's one supposed to be like hard R? Like, wasn't there supposed to be like, an orgy in it or something like that? Like, the script was 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 a problem for some people. Like, I remember when they were when they were bidding on it that one of the concerns was. Would it have to be toned down? Like it's very much about like the decadence of, of Hollywood at that time. So,
1: well, to me, it almost sounds like a redo of the artist. So this might be the better version of the artist to come out uh, when, when it does. It. I'm here for it. I'm
0: here for it. Um, So for the question wise, I think the, the answer is it's it's costume or makeup just because it's not a potential. Oh, yeah, there wasn't really any distinctive
2: winner. makeup, was there?
0: Yeah, I mean, they all look of the time and the hair, you know, looks of the time, but I, I there's just not really a whole lot of makeup and hairstyle contenders this year. Like I'll give you my five. Mm. There's Mank, there's Ma Rainey. There's more Ma Rainey has more makeup and more hairstyling, but I don't know that it's, you know, gonna hit with the Academy necessarily. Um my number three is Borat, Which definitely <laughs> has makeup. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um Wonder That's Woman. Valid. You know, Kristen Wiggs gonna have some degree of makeup before it's CGI. And Mulan is the top five, and like Hilioji is six. Like that's not a mm. it's not a great category. So you just sort of they're gonna have to pick a direction.
1: Right. Well I mean yeah. y- you you mentioned with it isn't with the mank, up, um yes. I apologize for that, but uh Ouch. Yeah but the narrative behind that really is like oh gary oldman went natural like he's not hiding behind prosthetics the way that he did with darkest hour and i could almost see that as a backfire because it almost feels like that category more is better like we want to see somebody with you know a prosthetic nose or you know in a fat suit or something like that like it doesn't really you know lend itself to to that category but then again you could look at like tom burke who's playing orson wells and he's only in a couple of scenes but it looks like they did do something with his his face and you know hairstyle and things like that and maybe again just the time period specifically
0: yeah it's 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 one of those things where i could i could see him winning uh, the film winning i'm sorry just because but also you know not getting nominated even potentially um in costume or uh make hair song i think costume is a safer bet for a nomination because it's very you know age you know period appropriate but again it's such a not great category this year that it, it's very hard to tell the direction that they're going to go in because there isn't a traditional like oh let's just go here closest thing there is ammonite
1: and and i i very easily see ammonite pulling a goose egg do you have um, Birds of Prey in, in one of your other tiers? Because I feel like that could maybe make yeah, a, a run an, for a, it. it. It's
0: at the bottom of the of the area. Like I, I don't know that
2: um, Warner Brothers is going to bother. Right. But if they do. But keep yeah. in mind, Suicide Squad won makeup a few years back, so anything's yeah. possible. And they were as
1: surprised as anyone. Yep. Can't wait for that to one day be on Turner Classic Movies, 31 yes. Days of Oscars.
0: <laughs> Suicide Squad. I, I I'm, I'm here for it. Um, it's a good segue into our, our topic, um, our main topic. So we're gonna talk about best actor in a little bit, but first our sort of news topic is that uh, Warner Brothers doesn't uh, like making money anymore. No kidding. Um, most of you know this by now. They're sending their entire slate next year to HBO Max as well as theaters. This is a one year like experiment. You know, smartly realizing in a sense that you know you can't make money at the box office right now, and we don't know when you can. Um, I'd actually, I think on Eric's shows, and even and on a recent podcast here, sort of uh, hinted that I knew this was coming to a degree with uh, with Judas and the Black Messiah. So not like shocking, shocking, but shocking in the sense that they're doing it with everything, and they're not going to hold anything back to, you know, we're just not going to do it with this movie or we're not going to do it with that movie they're they're going all in. So I'm curious how we feel about this because I've sort of um, sort of come down on on the the feeling that yeah it's it's great if you're an audience member. If you just want to watch movies and you've been upset that you couldn't go to the theater this year, I don't know if you've either been you know, watching things on VOD or if you haven't been seeing newer stuff in the same way. This is a good thing. If you're a cinema purist, it's a bad thing. If you are a theater operator, it's a bad thing. If you're another studio, it seems like a bad thing. So it's hard to to know what to think because it is really in the service of people who go to the movies. It's just not really in the service of the industry that makes
2: those movies. So I'm curious what you guys have to say. Uh yeah, I mean I I sort of I'm I'm of two minds about it. I mean, there's definitely a selfish audience member part of me that is just relieved that I'm not gonna have to wait yet another year to see Dune. Um, you know, I'm excited to see that. I'm excited for the Suicide Squad, Juice and the Black Messiah, Matrix Four, sort of a lot of these movies they're talking about and Space Jam a New Legacy. Absolutely. Tom and Jerry. Well, less so. Um but I think the, con- the conjuring the devil made me do it. Uh, Godzilla versus Kong, all these good things. Malignant.
0: Those but, who wish me dead. There's 17 of these. We could do this for a while.
2: We could, but I'm trying to make a point. I know. Um, the... Uh, On the one hand, I do think it is the best move to be made right now because it sort of splits the difference of we're not cutting theaters out of the equation completely. But we're also acknowledging the reality of the situation, which is that a large percentage of people, especially in New York and L.A., which are two of the biggest film markets, just don't have the option of going to theaters right now. Or even in places that do have the option, they don't feel comfortable with it. So it is giving an alternative. It means that they don't have to keep delaying these moves. And keep hemorrhaging money because they're sitting on these ad campaigns that they can't do anything with all this money they've spent on all these movies that they can't do anything with. So I completely understand it from their perspective. Um, The point has been made that sort of once you open this door in terms of limiting the theatrical exclusivity window, that it's very difficult to close that door again. And I think that's definitely a valid point. I think the smart move. I think for both the studios and the theaters would be to sort of renegotiate sort of the profit percentage so that theaters aren't getting quite as ripped off. A, so they don't boycott the whole thing, and B, so there's a little there's room for negotiation, especially when the pandemic does eventually lift and people are comfortable going fully back to the theaters. Um, I was reading an interview with um, Steven Soderbergh who actually uh, weighed in on it, and he sort of was kind of siding with the studio in the sense that. They're facing the economic reality of the situation and, you know, full credit to Warner Brothers for being one of the only studios that's actually at least trying stuff like they were the ones who sort of offered up Tenet as the canary in the coal mine to sort of see whether these things would even work or not. Obviously, that didn't pan out. But, you know, at least they're giving it a shot. They're obviously trying with Wonder Woman later this month. So I think... It's sort of the best case scenario we're going to get right now. And, you know, nobody on any side of the equation, whether it's audience, studios, cinema, nobody benefits from bottlenecking the release schedule. And if it gets to the point where we've got two years worth of movies that have to come out in a single quarter, that's not going to be good for anyone because that just means audiences are going to miss out on stuff. Theaters are going to miss out on making the most they could from each movie. Same with the studio. And it just it sort of dovetails the whole thing. But it does potentially open a Pandora's box that will eventually lead to not the death of cinema. I don't think the art of going to the theater is ever going to go away. But, you know, like we were kind of talking about before we started recording and like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas sort of famously predicted, I think almost a decade ago, uh, going to the cinema could start to become much closer to the modern Broadway experience where it's more of you only go for like the big sort of, you know, either the big comic book movie, the big billion-dollar movie, the big event thing, and then all of the mid-range stuff is pretty much exclusive to streaming, and maybe you get some exceptions with more auteur stuff like your David Fincher's or your Tarantino's or Chris Nolan's. But otherwise, it's just going to be franchise stuff, and it's going to be more of like, you know, because most theaters that we know of now have already sort of become half-restaurants, Where a lot of them are like, you know, you can get a full pizza or you can get a burger or you can, you know, get nachos, whatever you want there. And I think it might sort of go even further in that direction. And it becomes more of a, you know, almost like going to a fancy restaurant and watching a movie rather than just casually going out to a movie as we knew it before the pandemic.
0: Sure. I mean, I I think that we're almost I mean, we, we were kind of getting there already. Um, if you look at what people were going to see and what was getting made already, you know, the, a studio, let's just say Warner brothers, just for argument's sake, cause they're doing this, you know, what were they greenlighting? They were greenlighting superhero movies that are designed to make a billion dollars. So we, we spend what we need to do to make a billion dollars. And that was largely what they were doing. If they were making a, you know, a mid tier movie, it was only to please you know ben affleck you know or one of their 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 you know stable directors it wasn't you know they weren't going and acquiring small things like they made the judge because they could work with robert Downey jr you know i think yeah they did the judge right yes yeah yeah Yeah, okay yeah but you see that's that's an exception that used to be you know i was watching the rainmaker last night and that's a, you know, like down the middle studio movie that Francis Ford Coppola made to make some cash. But it's well made and it's entertaining. But that's a movie that... Well, the Gary
1: Oldman cover up again, right?
0: Yeah. But, I mean, he's not in that one.
1: No, I know. But he still has to cover the, you know, exactly. the loss of but all had those to, ADs. But He has to pay for it. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. But that's a movie that would get greenlit all the time. You know, a studio would always go like, you know, I don't know what the equivalent is in, in box office now. But it'd be the equivalent of like, spend 20 to make 40. You know, spend 30 to make 50 like no one's no one's breaking the bank over it. But, you know, adult couples will go see this movie on Friday night and we'll be fine. Uh, they don't do that anymore. I, I say this a bunch of times when I interview people and we talk about this, that, you know, Jeremy Maguire wouldn't get made anymore. It was all, I also watched that last night. But that's a movie that made 100 million dollars, starred the biggest movie star on the planet at the time, won an Academy Award, was up for Best Picture that would that would maybe get be a netflix movie now like a studio would pass on it they would go we don't we don't have an audience for this so they've kind of like eliminated the mid-range audience so i think theaters already were billion dollar properties the occasional counter programming you know there's there's you know three marvel movies out so let's have a romantic comedy out and then independent film which was you know largely in its own theaters anyway now and if one broke out, it would get bumped up to the the multiplex. So they've already kind of gone in this direction. The thing that I really am curious about is what the studios do that don't have a streaming service. You know, Warner Brothers has HBO Max, so they're they're fine with this. You know, Disney has Disney Plus. Netflix is its own thing already. Amazon and Apple, like they have, I, they have ways of doing this. But what happens for like? Sony and Universal, for example, like what do they end well, up doing?
1: Didn't Universal sign the deal, or was going to sign the deal with uh, was it Regal or AMC? To it was have AMC, AMC, like a thirty day
2: window kind of thing.
1: Yeah, to change yeah. the 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 window itself, and I could see that kind of being something that even after you know the pandemic is 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 over, whenever that might be, um, something that kind of changes the way that movies are released because it feels like we were going that down that road. You know, Joe, to your 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 thoughts like we're we're in this stage where things are making a a change and like to go back to like you know internationally speaking like in canada um, at this at this moment, uh, none of those movies that were announced by Warner Brothers next year will be available in Canada to stream. So we have we don't have HBO Max. We have a, um, a streaming service called Crave, and they get some of HBO Max's stuff, but it's more so like the TV movie kind of equivalent. So we'll get the Soderbergh movie uh, next week. We got Charm City Kings, but um, they released a, a, a press release, and in that press release, it said. That so far at this moment, you know, we will not be, um, you know, partnering up with HBO Max and that all of these movies will still be getting a theatrical release when, you know, theaters in the greater Toronto area specifically are all closed right now. We didn't even get The Witches, you know, like that was a movie that was like. Why are you complaining about that? Well, I'm not. I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying, like, the way that that movie was supposed to come out, it was like, okay, um, yes, The Witches is getting a streaming release in the U.S., but it will be coming out in Canada in November, and then the week that it was supposed to get released, Warner Brothers sends out this this, you know, email saying basically like, yeah, we're going to remove it from the calendar. It's a, a indefinite release, so that is going to be interesting from an international point of view, and you have to also think of like what will happen with piracy and things like that. And, um, you know, I, I'd be also just curious to know how, you know, far in advance the filmmakers knew about this, you know, coming out. Because I think of, again, like someone like Denis Villeneuve, who made Dune, who's, this has been a passion project of his for, for, uh, you know, decades now and made it for the big screen. Like what were, you know, his thoughts getting this information and when he got the information. Um, But again, yeah, like it'll be interesting on an international scale to see like how Warner Brothers kind of deals with this because not every country has you know hbo max to begin with so
0: you guys have that uh the government health care so you gotta suffer a little bit no hbo max for you
1: (laughs) well i'll spend more time uh at my uh uh, at my hospital then because i will have uh you know free health care so but but other than that yeah it's free health it's good free health care and cheap prescriptions and 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 legal marijuana but yes
0: you can't watch the witches
1: no, no, or Wonder Woman. You know, at this at, again, at this moment, like Wonder Woman is supposed to play theatrically here in Canada, but again, movie theaters won't be opened. And and I do wonder just like the long term effects of this because Warner Brothers has done it. Disney, you know, has done it with a couple of things with both Soul and Mulan. We've seen it with you um, know Universal with uh, Trolls World Tour. I wonder, you know, talking about someone like Christopher Nolan, you know, if Warner Brothers decides, okay, this is. Working for us, you know, more so than it used to. Does does Nolan move to another studio? And I was even thinking, like, you know, what studio would be the one to kind of champion, you know, quote unquote, the auteur filmmakers? And it seems like MGM right now is trying to rebrand itself with, you know, the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Uh, they picked up the rights for the Ridley Scott Gucci film, so it almost seems like that might be the, you know, quote unquote, uh, filmmaker-friendly studio uh, in the next few years
0: we talked about that last week and yeah we were were kind of coming up empty on where he could go because who would give him his budget netflix but i don't think he ever wants to do that um no he would love an a24 but they can't afford him so you know his his options are limited also i love the fact that um so trump's america first policy has finally affected canada
1: by just taking away wonder woman but, he won. He finally won. That bastard.
2: His, his, his parting shot. Well, he uh, he had to win. You know, if so, he was only going to win one thing this year. Yes. I'm. Listen. I'm happy. I'm happy this way. Um. Yeah. So i, I I'm, What I'm curious about,
0: even beyond what the other studios do, is uh, is what's going to happen, a year from now. Let's say we're back to normal. Like, what do they take out of this? Is this? Is it a? Is it, it going to stick around? Is it going away? is it going to be used just sometimes you know will they will they have a tier system where certain films will you know get the dual release some will only go one way some will only go the other way and what does that mean like is that their way of stemming off
2: the the change i don't know it's uh well that's no, that's actually kind of what uh, Soderberg was touching on in the sense that you know not every release strategy works for every movie and i think you know we've seen a lot of experimentation this year on different movies' ultimately getting different releases based on what makes sense for it. Some going straight to VOD, some going to Netflix, some splitting the difference with theaters and, um, and streaming some doing the paid subscription thing like Mulan. And I think what you're going to increasingly get potentially is that They're going to be a bit more selective of, okay, what makes sense for this movie? Maybe it came out in theaters, but it didn't do so well. So rather than forcing it to hang around for this 30-day window that it's not even going to make great use of anyway, you just go ahead and fast forward it to streaming the next week or something like that. So I think we're going to see a lot more experimentation in how movies are released and how specific movies are. Releases are tailored to the movie than you might have seen beforehand.
0: Yeah, or or even just like a, a tier system where, you know, like the, the you know, like the tenant in a normal scenario. Let's say that, you know, we're in the next Christopher Nolan movie, you know, might not be a 30-day window. It might be a 60-day window because they think they can, they can play it, you know, at a high capacity for two months and then take the hit of how many people watch it at home or you know, if it's going to be 30 days for all, maybe that's a, the premium VOD where it's, you know, that that rumored like $40, $50 price point. Whereas, a you know, a, a more mid-budget movie will be 30 days then be available for, for the same price or whatever. Or you might have some that'll be day and date now, and they'll just, you know, take the hit and be like, however you watch the movie is good with us. So, I, I it remains to be seen. Uh, to transition quickly, though, I will say that I, I watched a movie this week that um, does suffer from not being in theaters. And, and I said on Twitter, um, Will Mavity had a, a thing about, like, what's a good movie that played well in theaters that also plays well at home? And I, I, my hot take was all of them. But um, <laughs> there are times you notice that, oh, this would have done um, differently in theaters. So the, the compromise, I, I would say, is nothing's ever worse at home, but there are things that are better on the big screen. Like, I I don't know that Interstellar would have blown blown me away the same way it did if I watched it at home. Um, All this to say, I saw News of the World, which is uh, clearly had been made to be seen on the big screen, like, very sprawling-looking Western. So I am kind of curious how that's going to do now that, you know, voters will not be seeing it in the theater. You know, the cinematography is supposed to be, you know, wide in scope. Um, Overall, though, it's good. It's not... It didn't, like, blow me away. It's it kind of just feels like a good western and, and comes together a little bit in the third act so for the first like half hour 45 minutes you you gotta stick with it it's a little little slow going but overall solid so I don't want to say too much because not a whole lot of people have seen it yet but um, it's tied into the conversation like it's still like a an awards player can get like most of the nominations it was gonna get but it's not gonna change the game and suddenly win anything and if anything it may suffer just a little bit from You know, not impressing people the same way because it's not on the big screen.
1: I think I felt that way with Nomadland. Not, I. I, Nomadland is my favorite film of the year so far, but. In terms of the cinematography, like I remember watching that during um, the Toronto Film Festival, the um, you know watching it at home and, and their digital platform, and thinking visually speaking, how much better this probably would have been watching it on you know a big screen in yeah. you know the, the Princess of Wales Theatre or something like that, and like the the magic hour shots specifically are just so beautiful and immersive. And like, it kind of felt like there was something maybe a little bit more that would be enhanced by a theatrical experience, but I still got quite a bit out of it just watching it at home on a big screen. And like, again, like home entertainment units and systems have gotten so much better over the years, but there is still something partly communal. And then also partly, you know, again, that style of just kind of being completely, immersed in you know a narrative and in the visuals and and i think that that's a movie specifically for me where like i i loved the cinematography but um i felt like oh that might have even been in just a little bit more um poetic if it were on a big screen
0: yeah i mean that's just sort of what this year is in a nutshell which then makes the awards predictions kind of tough um Not impossible, but just another layer to it. So we we can wrap up by talking about Best Actor. We talked about Actress last um, week, and uh, I spoke about it earlier. Again, tier system. Uh, I believe that there's no world in which uh, Chadwick Boseman and Anthony Hopkins are not nominated. They're your one, two, and probably the only two who can win. But beyond that, that's where things get interesting because currently my three, four, five are Gary Oldman, Riz Ahmed, Ben Affleck. And I think there are three of the people, along with Delroy Lindo, Kingsley Benadir, and maybe Tom Hanks, that are that are, and Stephen Ewan, and and w- either Daniel Kaluuya or, or the Keith Stanfield from Judas and the Black Messiah, whoever goes um, lead, they're still figuring that out. That's sort of your your lineup. You you have you have a top ten, and you're sort of three. I would say like three through eight. Could be interchangeable, and you have a couple people sort of on the fringes who can who can do it, and that's a that's an odd spot for for actor because normally we talk about how it's like a bloodbath and it, you know there's so many performances that are not going to get in, and it doesn't feel like that this year. It feels very clear like here's two, and here's a couple others, but they represent such diverse kind of fare that I, I'm very curious to see how it's going to go. And, and as you as Eric mentioned earlier, like Mank, you know. If it comes down to, let's say, Gary Oldman against either Riz Ahmed or Ben Affleck, it, it does seem like there will be voters who would go, like, Riz Ahmed's never been nominated. It's on the middles a smaller movie. Maybe it's only a nomination. Same for The Way Back. Affleck has an Oscar, but he's never been nominated for actor. You know, maybe I'm also an alcoholic and I love that performance. There's there's enough out there that you could easily see, you know, an Oldman missing. In the same way that I think, like, Delroy Lindo is like, kind of fallen a bit down because you you can only have so many netflix movies you can only have so many you know like people start to hem and haw where they where they feel like they're checking the same box over and over again so curious what you guys think.
1: Right, but it also feels it feels like with Affleck and and, and Riz Ahmed to a certain degree that there are probably going to be a lot more passionate votes for, yeah. for those guys where like, again, like Gary Oldman almost feels like a default nomination in, in a weird way and even Delroy Lindo feels like a passionate vote because, you know, he's a, a character actor that's been around for so long and has this amazing sort of monologue to the camera that I think a lot of actors will kind of get behind and it's a Big role, like it is a big kind of showy performance. But I could also see that losing out because it's more of an action movie. It's probably not going to get um, the same kind of uh, widespread acclaim as Black Klansman did. And it kind of felt like, okay, well, this is like us, you know, giving Spike Lee a bit of a, uh, you know, paying him back a bit for not nominating him for for do the right thing. So it doesn't really have that narrative push this year. So and then like again, like Chadwick Boseman could factor into supporting actor. As well, yeah. So that the attention could be, you know, drawn to him getting a double nomination. Um, but it, it is interesting like that. Like, I do agree with you. Like, it feels like, you know, there are seven nominees that are really or, you know, seven potential nominees that are kind of vying for the five. And I would agree that both, you know, Hopkins and Bozeman, you know, being in very different stage adaptations are your two contenders. And then you even have great performances from people, you know, like Mads Mikkelsen in, in Another Round, who's phenomenal in that movie. But that film will not get probably any traction for Best Actor, just because it's a smaller, you know, film company, and it's an international film. Um, but to be honest, at this point, I would probably say it's between those two. Personally, I would go with Ahmed just because I was kind of blown away by Sound of Metal the first time I saw it at TIFF in 2019. And then, again recently. Um, just revisiting it. And I just think it's one of those performances that will get a lot of those passionate votes for and kind of will be like, you know, a career best performance from a guy who, you know, kind of came to prominence with, uh, you know, Four Lions and since then has been doing a lot of really good work. But then again, like I could also see, you know, someone like Delroy Lindo kind of gaining a lot of that passion just because, you know, he's been around for so long, worked with so many people, both in film and television. And like, you know, like a lot of people loved you know, his performance in Crooklyn and, and kind of felt like that was a really solid little performance. And so, yeah, at this point I would definitely say, you know, rambling aside that it's probably down to Hopkins and, and Bozeman and both of which are, are very much worthy of the, the nominations, but it does feel like a tighter race overall. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, I I, I would, I would follow up on that. I completely agree. I think Hopkins and Bozeman are the ones to beat both for nomination and for win. I, I, Even outside of nominations, it's hard for me to imagine anyone beating either of them for the win. Um, I think both Ben Affleck and Delroy Lindo while giving very impressive performances, I think they're both going to struggle because A, both of their films came out much earlier in the year, and B, it's not looking super likely that either film is going to get a bunch of other nominations that could sort of carry them along. So while, you know, they're both definitely in contention, I think they're going to be struggling without some serious sort of campaigning. Um, The one that I think is sort of The potential spoiler that could throw off the whole thing is uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, Just based on the trailer and how they sort of look to be pushing it, it looks like Daniel Kaluuya has probably the showier performance. So if I had to guess, I would say that's the one they're going to push for lead actor. And um I mean, we'll see how, you know, what the reception is when the film finally screens, but I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up being the one that sort of disrupts the order of what we're kind of assuming here. Um, Riz Ahmed, I think, and Gary Oldman are sort of, I I feel like they're both pretty comfortable with three and four. I mean, anything can happen. Um, Tom Hanks is not, you know, the guaranteed nomination, I think. If you look a couple years back, we would he was kind of the male Meryl Streep where, oh, if he's in something and it's a well-regarded movie, he'll probably slip in. But he's missed out on a few of those seemingly obvious ones. Like you think of like Captain Phillips and stuff like that, where it would have seemed like he was a shoe in, but then he just didn't make it. Um, I haven't seen News of the World yet, but again, in contention, but no guarantee. But yeah, I think Daniel Kaluuya or Lakeith Stanfield, if they end up going lead with him, could potentially be the surprise that sort of uh, throws this off. Now that said, as far as winner, I would, I don't know if they're going to be able to resist giving Bozeman the posthumous Oscar, just because it's kind of a Heath Ledger situation where it's as much weighted by all the performances that we missed out on because he died so young, and I think that does add an extra layer to it that's completely separate from the performance itself. Yeah, and it's not like the performance isn't good. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty
0: convinced that if he had been alive you know the movie would still be would still be hitting similarly and i think he would um be in play i think the difference is it would be more of a surprise oddly i think you uh you know i got the sense that when when he passed that everyone kind of like bumped up how much they liked his work a couple of degrees which i'm glad people are catching on but you know you i i always liked him you know in in even movies people didn't love like i like draft day but i know it's not like a popular film but i thought he did a great job like you know so there's there's something about you know the performance is almost like a miss, mythical quality now same with dark knight like ledger's performance took on like an aura of like you know this is this is an all-timer and you're you're sort of left to wonder whether it would have been declared that though i think we we've mostly all determined like he probably still would have won if you've been alive yeah. it would have it would have felt maybe slightly weirder you know for him to be on making the press rounds talking about playing joker um as we've learned you know you want to hear the least about how to play that role god knows i'm tired <laughs> of listening to people talk about how they did it but you know i think <laughs> i think the the bozeman nomination would definitely still happen i do wonder about the win um if you know the anthony hopkins like showingness of that role and, and appeal to the older crowd would would overwhelm but yeah like right now i would say like 70 30 probably that that bozeman wins and it's a deserving performance which is what matters you know it's never i don't get anyone who's ever upset about like a posthumous win like it you're not the person who's not getting the whole the oscar like why does it bother you um mm. unless it's you know if it was like a, a performance that you're not super like wild about you know, I, I understand to some degree, like um, when James Gandolfini died, when it was like, I guess enough said, you know, maybe he'll get nominated. Like, sure. And he's, he's solid in it. Like, you know, take it on the on, on surface. I don't care about the nomination, good or bad. It's fine. It, then you start to worry about what it what, did it what did it take away? Like, is someone else not getting in? It, but it, it it's all sort of nonsense to to worry about in that sense. Like, in this case, Bozeman's good. He's very good, in fact. He deserves to win and probably will win. And uh, yeah, he's not going to not get
1: nominated. So, um, Do you think that'll up. help him get into supporting, though? That's, yeah.
0: yeah. I, I think what also helped him get into supporting is that it's a clumped together category that doesn't really have a, a sense of how it's going to be. Like We'll talk about supporting maybe another week, but just quickly, I'll give you my five i have bill murray winning still just because i don't have a good sense of who's gonna win and i there is probably a segment of the academy who'd be thrilled to give him an oscar but like two i have sasha baron cohen for trial chicago seven and and maybe that's who's gonna win but it just it feels like a weird win and then bozeman's there at three i have mark rylance at four and i have leslie odom jr at five and then six i sort of have reserved for whoever is not the lead in in Judas like I do think what I'll say is if if Daniel Kaluuya goes supporting I think I'm going to put him at number one because that seems like a supporting performance that could win but if you look at the other supporting performances there's not um, a clear you know like oh this is what wins this is the type of thing that wins
1: yeah the front runner category like there's nobody that it's like oh like yeah this is the person that it's theirs to lose basically yeah, nobody nobody
0: is mistaken that claim. Like, I think Bill Murray could have done that in the sense of just like what his perform, you know, who he is in a movie that's fun. But I don't know how they're going to campaign
1: for it yet, and I just he, don't know
0: what voters he, are going to do about it.
1: He probably could have been the front runner or one if the French Dispatch also opened this year. Because I feel like with both, and I talked to you about this before on the other show. Um, that with both, you know, Sofia Coppola and Wes Anderson being the filmmakers that kind of resurrected his career in the late 90s and into the 2000s and sort of saw him as, the, you know, an actor as much as he was, a, you know, a comedic movie star, that it kind of felt like, you know, him returning with Sofia Coppola and him again working with Wes Anderson could have been that push, that extra yeah. kind of like, you know, that that additional thing. But, but again, like I think overall... It is such a, a, a weird category that we could even see something strange kind of happening in, you know, um, the trial of the Chicago seven popping up with somebody at random or or what have you. But it, it will be I think that it's going to be one of the most interesting categories. It is a supporting actor.
0: I mean, the only other possibility that I know some people are thinking about and I don't fully buy it is Stanley Tucci for Supernova. Um, he's good. in right. the movie. The movie is kind of very small and and fine um so i i don't really yeah there just there isn't a a person i've i've said it a couple times before about bill murray like if uh if this had been a normal year with this kind of lineup i think he would have won because i think you might have been able to convince him to go out and about and do a handful of events and just let the academy like swoon over you and 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 do your thing like be weird bill murray and have fun with it but There's a there's enough people who would vote for you based on enjoying having interacted with you. Like I've told this story before. Bohemian Rhapsody wins a lot of its Oscars, not based on being good, because God knows it isn't. But you go to an event, and you listen to Rami Malek talk about playing Freddie Mercury in it. You know, I had seen the movie already. I knew it was mediocre. I knew he was fine in the movie, but nothing spectacular. But you listen to him talk about it and you watch the Academy like eat it up and you go, oh, I get it. I get why he's winning. So you know, you if you couldn't gotten Bill Murray to go out and and talk about like eating caviar in a car in Manhattan, you you, you probably would win. But you know, remains to be seen. So I think we're gonna wrap up now, and uh, you know, see what momentous news happens next week. Um, by that time, I'll have seen the midnight sun. I mean, the midnight sky. The uh, the Clooney Netflix movie. the Midnight Sun is the prequel. Yes, the Midnight Sun is a much happier movie, I think, and uh, possibly Wonder Woman. So that's uh, that's exciting. And then, honestly, there won't be a whole lot left to uh, to do,
1: which is kind of weird. <laughs> but well, unless Sundance changes things in 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 the new year, right? Like that could have a yeah, an impact, so we, right?
0: Yeah, we've talked about this a little bit. Sundance is a, a sort of a last-ditch opportunity if you want to want to launch something. So you can't um, can't buy something and put it out. I would be shocked if anyone did that. That seems almost impossible, you know. To, to you know pick up a new project and uh, and campaign it, but if you're if you're thinking about whether or not to come out during this window or you want to launch with a little bit of buzz yeah i i would i would 100 look to like focus on the card counter apple and cherry even though that just sounds like pie flavors um <laughs> warner and just Black like messiah what is it uh united states versus billy holiday if that comes out like any of these like potential come like those who wish me dead if it's going to come out um next goal wins um the eyes of Tammy Faye, like any of these movies that you have heard nothing about that were pegged as potential releases this year that didn't move their date yet or never had a date. That's your do or die moment. If you're, if you're gonna try to make a claim in the race, like if you see a market inefficiency somewhere, your, your last ditch effort is go to Sundance, hope you get good reviews and then you have a month to, to come out in theaters. So I don't know that it's going to work, but that is your sort of like 11th hour. What used to be, I guess, debuting at AFI, it's like a last minute, like up oh, one more movie. But now it's it's Sundance for this year. Otherwise, you you start over again. at can, which is where I'm sure like French Dispatch is going to go. Unless unless that's going to try for Sundance, but I, I think they would have hinted that they're going to try to put it out if they were going to put it out. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, you, you know, it, you don't drop like that. Um, but yeah, some of these Warner HBO Max movies, like I could see them testing it out with like Those Who Wish Me Dead or something like that. We'll see though. For now, we'll we'll wrap up. And um, Miles is always, you can say where they can find you. Eric can do the same. And then um, just give me a couple of movies, each of you from the year so far that you would like people to check out.
2: All right. Uh, Well, I'm miles. You can find me on Twitter at miles on film. That's M Y L E S on film. You can also find me on Instagram at marvelous miles, even though I never use it. I don't know why I plug it every week, but there it is. Uh, Please check out my short film, American exorcist. You can find it on YouTube under aftershock pictures. It's I'm really proud of it and hope more people see it. Uh, As far as recommendations uh, for movies this year, uh, my number one of the year remains Freaky. It's now available on VOD. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's the best slasher movie in years. It's the funniest movie I've seen all year. Um, I also definitely recommend Palm Springs, which is on Hulu. And I'm thinking of Ending Things, which is on Netflix.
1: And I'm uh, Eric Marchin. You can find more of my uh, reviews and interviews on the social medias, uh, Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram at EM6211. Um, I co host a show on uh, or called the Untitled Movie Podcast with uh, Matt Rohrbeck. And I also host a TV show called Cinema Scene on Rogers TV, slash cinema scene, uh, where Joey was a recent guest. You can uh, head to that website and see us talk uh, for about a half an hour about uh, similar subjects, uh, excluding the HBO Max news. Yeah. And uh, in terms of uh, movies, I would recommend, I mean, I already mentioned uh, Nomadland is one of my favorite films of the year, but one film that I keep talking about to anybody who will listen um, is the Ross Brothers' uh, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, which is this weird hybrid documentary narrative about a bar in uh, Vegas on its last day before it closed with all the, the regulars coming back. And it's as cinematic as any Robert Altman or Hal Ashby movie made in the 1970s. It has such a unique kind of style to it and it kind of again blends, you know, documentary filmmaking and narrative filmmaking and it's interesting to learn about uh the production after you've watched it, but it's one of those movies where I just can't stop thinking about it and how, you know, you can take different mediums and kind of smush them together and make them kind of really really interesting. Um and then I also recently watched uh Remy Weeks's uh his house which I think, you know, like we talk a lot about in terms of like, you know, the new horror tour filmmakers like, you know, Jordan Peele, Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, um but you have people like this this Weeks guy and also even, you know, um other filmmakers that are kind of making their staple on sort of the darker look of uh, depression and sort of mixing that within the genre and mixing metaphor specifically. So I would definitely recommend uh, his house, which is now available on uh, Netflix. And I believe uh bloody nose, empty pockets is available on uh, iTunes. It's also available on Blu-ray through utopia and vinegar syndrome.
0: Nice. Uh, you can find me, Joey Maggotson, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, letterbox snapchat all that all that good stuff uh movie wise um i second most of what everyone said already uh banana split it's a uh, teen teen movie that is incredibly well written hannah marks and liana Liberato, just a delight i think it's on netflix right now spontaneous um as i've said it's as if david cronenberg directed the fault in our stars What more do I have to say? Watch this damn movie. Um, Never Really Sometimes Always remains one of my favorites and I think is uh, potentially a bigger awards play than people think. And because I've become a Focus Features fan account, uh, Promising Young Woman, which is a goddamn masterpiece. So more on that soon. You can watch all of them currently except Promising Young Woman. That one is coming out on Christmas Day. So talk more about that movie soon. In the meantime... This has been uh, our nonsense and we'll be back with more of it next week. Thank you to Eric for joining us and, uh, you know, stay safe, wear a mask and, uh, you know,
2: hang in there. All right, guys. Take care, everybody. Bye.